don't put too much energy into things you don't want to improve at. This is something that I've spoken about uh, a couple of times before, and this was actually brought up in a conversation between Tim Grover uh, and the Flow Collective Research Group. Uh, and for those of you that are unfamiliar with Flow, basically it's uh, it's a, a feeling, uh, a state that you're in where you're not really thinking about anything else other than the, the task at hand, and you, you could argue that you're not really thinking about it, you're just doing it, you're just getting stuff done. Oftentimes that could be in when you're when you're playing a game or when you're really focused at one specific thing trying to get something done. And the idea about the, this comment, this conversation they were having was uh, don't put energy into things you don't want to improve at is that when you're working in flow or you've got to flow or you're trying to direct energy into a certain direction or a certain focus, don't put energy into something that you don't actually want to improve at. So I, I relate this back to questions. When you're looking at something, researching something, want to find something else, if there's a question there that you don't really need to know the answer to, you don't really want to know the answer to, maybe, uh, you, you don't need to put the effort in. And this is where uh, our curiosity and our direction of effort needs to be somewhat mediated, because if we've got uh, loads and loads and loads of questions that we want to find answers to, we can't find answers to all of them. Because every time we learn something, we know oh, this is something new, I have loads more questions. And if you put energy into all of those questions, you're never going to get an answer to all of them because each of those questions is going to have more answers. So directing your energy to things you actually want to improve at is quite important when you're looking to direct your energy to a specific goal, target, endpoint, output, something to come from the research and the learning. So the question then becomes, okay, where and how do I decide to put my energy? And going away from this energy in study for a second, energy compensation has been a term going around in the strength and conditioning field recently uh, and the nutrition field and bodybuilding and that sort of area and research because energy compensation has been suggested uh, when it comes to weight loss. And I'll, I'll link this back in a second, but they uh, they were talking about, that. I've, this is a video from Picture Fair actually that I've referenced, which all the references will be in the, the uh, description, but essentially, as you burn more, you burn more energy doing one activity, you burn less doing something else. So, as an example, when you're just sitting still, you've got something called your basal metabolic rate. So, your energy, your body is burning energy just sitting still because you need to use energy to breathe, to move, and that sort of stuff. Uh, but when you're doing activities, you're now not sitting still. So your energy level is going to increase, but it's not going to increase on top of your BMR because your BMR has been changed because you're doing an activity. So to put some arbitrary numbers to it, your expenditure, your energy expenditure could be 10 at rest. It could be 20 when you're doing an activity, but that 10 plus 20 would make 30. That could be your energy expenditure at the end. Energy compensation says mm, that's not right because your, your, your original 10 is no longer 10 because you're doing something. So the 10 turns into a 7. So instead of it being a 30, it's a 27. So you know, you've lost some of that, that energy because you've been compensated elsewhere. And that, going back to the questions, going back to research and where to divert your energy, is how I see your energy when you're researching. Because if you've got a question, you've got a big research question, maybe that's the, the topic of the essay or the topic of the research or the PhD or whatever you're looking at. And then you have another question. Well, if you've got another question, the energy that you're putting into something else is obviously going to decrease because your energy is going elsewhere. Now, this this energy compensation, I think, could apply over time. So if you've answered 
30 questions, arbitrary number, you've answered 30 questions that don't apply directly to the PhD, well, loads of the energy that you've had throughout those days has not been directed at finding an actual answer, diverging away from the potential goal. What this then means is you're you're essentially wasting time doing something that you don't need to do. And this, this idea of energy compensation, directing energy at a specific point, is very useful not just in researchers, for researchers, for high performers, but also just in, in general day living. Because when we're looking at our phones, going through social media and all the other different distractions, our energy is split and if our energy is split into all of those different uh, areas it's very it's very difficult to then certainly go okay i'm now going to focus on this one thing or just these things and give a, a real direction as the the purpose of your actions so splitting up your energy is certainly useful sometimes when you need to rest recover do a bit of passive consumption and and just chill out but if you split your attention split your energy too much too frequent it's then hard to really focus in on what's going on. And this is where reflection needs to be a skill that we all use. Reflection, looking back, evaluating, making a judgment and analysis, uh, and trying to make sense of that, uh, which was spoken about in a conversation on the UK Coaching versus, uh, with UK Coaching Brendan Cropley. I want to say his last name is Brendan Cropley. Um, and they were talking about reflective practice. Uh, they were talking about reflective practice specifically for sports coaches and, and coaching individuals. And you'd use reflective practice in action, on action, after action reflection, either during, before, or after the session. But we can use reflective practice in our daily lives. And I think we should because all of us are coaches. We're not all necessarily sports coaches and we're not necessarily coaching other people. But we are all coaching ourselves, I think. I think we all have an internal coach that we decide, yes, we're going to use that person. No, we're not going to use that person. Because whenever we try and give advice to someone else, we are technically stepping into that coach's role, that teacher's role. Uh, so we all have a an idea of what a teacher does, what a coach does. So we can all teach ourselves and coach ourselves not necessarily as effectively as other, as, as other people, but again, what is effective? Uh, so looking at reflective practice and asking ourselves those questions as, as an internal coach, I think will help us move forwards and develop as a as personal development moving forwards. The, the difficult part about reflective practice is trying to be unbiased when you're doing it yourself, is trying to be unbiased. And when you are trying to be unbiased about where you're spending your energy, well, TikTok is really fun. I enjoy it. That's what I do to rest. Okay, if you're spending three hours on the app, is that really beneficial? Is that too much rest time? And those are the questions that you'd need to ask. What is too much rest? What is not enough rest? What is too much energy focused on something that isn't beneficial, isn't useful? Am I? Could I ask a question elsewhere? Could I ask someone else to do this research? Could I delegate my activities to this other person? Or could I just trust this person? There are, there are so many different ways to use reflective practice and how you expend your energy and how you choose to uh, put your energy in different places. But those questions, we need to try and be as unbiased as possible. We can't get rid of bias. It's something that we have. It's what the filters <laughs> the filters that we have looking at the world. But trying to be un as unbiased as possible is certainly a skill we need to develop, which in kids, they, they don't develop those skills because they're just told what to do in school. Uh, and I'm going to do a little bit of a school education rant a little bit later on because of some of the, some of the points I've, I've brought up uh, this week. So in developing developing this reflective skill 
requires an ability to be critical, which means you need to use a the scientific method of some sort. Uh, and I'm going to link this to a conversation Adam Nichols had on the Sports Psych Show about psychology and sports coaching. And what they were talking about was developing, essentially, uh, an evidence base. An evidence base from science. So psychology is a huge part of sports coaching because psychology, like the, the body, developing the body is physical and psychological. So psychology in sports coaching is the psychological aspects of coaching and psychology therefore like also impacts the, the sociological aspects. So how people communicate because psychology, how do I make those decisions? How do I talk to this person? I'm anxious. I don't want to talk to new people, etc. And how this links in, in my mind is evidence to inform practice. That's what they were talking about. How do they, how do you find, how's the, how does the coach find evidence, psychological evidence, research, um, sociological evidence, all the evidence that goes behind how you should or how you could act, how you could uh, work with different people, how you could work as a team, how you could communicate and finding science behind what it is that you're going to do. And the reason... And the reason this is kind of, it's its not really important for everyone, but it's important for people that are either teaching, coaching, using uh, any sort of content creation in their business. So the marketing aspect, because everything impacts our opi- opinions. Everything impacts uh, the filters that we look through the world in. If we see something enough times, we are more likely to believe it. That's just a phenomena that happens. If we see something multiple times, we are more likely to believe it's true, even if it might not be true and we haven't seen the facts for it. It's just something that happens with human uh, human uh, inclinations basically and th- there's the the science behind seeing the science behind it or not seeing the science behind it is either going to get us to be critical or not and if we're not developing those reflective skills when we're younger or those critical skills when we're younger to keep asking those questions then things are just going to be accepted because we've seen them so many times and I don't like using the same example multiple times but sleep deprivation is one of those times we've seen the same thing over and over and over again and people just believe it and that was one of the reasons I wanted to explore it Uh, and then I can have a look at some of the other examples in education just the most obvious example in education a teacher standing at the front of the classroom is the best way to be educated no it's not it's far from it but we see it everywhere we see it in all the countries it's how formal education has been done for so long people just accept yep that's right that's true and people don't change so they need to be reflective they need to develop reflective skills and go okay Maybe we need to change this. Then they need to be critical and understand, okay, where can we change this? How can we change this? What needs to be better? And then use the science in learning, science in pedagogy, science in psychology, science in coaching that has already been done. Like look at the social researches and make those changes. This is where a conversation from uh, another podcast that uh, I run with, uh, John, uh, we, we had a conversation about learning hubs and online communities. And that is where school education could go because it allows all of the aspects of learning with much less of the friction from formal education. So the, the this, this, this idea of school, formal schooling is beneficial, but it gives, it gives a framework. It gives a, a, a curriculum, but it also gives tests essays, assignments, and it gives a a formality to the education, which is fine. There's nothing inherently wrong with that. 
but it restricts people from being critical in a lot of ways because they have to focus, their energy has to be directed toward the essay. I need to pass the essay. So their energy is directed towards something that isn't necessarily going to benefit them later on in life or later on in education. So they they are forced to direct their energy in a place that they don't necessarily want to be directing energy, which isn't necessarily motivational. So using reflective practice and all of the different science behind that is, is difficult. It makes it difficult to learn in education, which I think is kind of counterintuitive. You would have thought you'd be learning in education, but that doesn't always happen. And Veritasium did uh, did a video a while back on self-driving cars, and there was a video I watched about his video, bear with me, um, called video, uh, Veritasium, A Story of YouTube Propaganda, and this was from Tom uh, Nicholas. Tom Nicholas has basically done some videos looking at some bigger educational YouTubers, looking at the the facts and the science behind them, and then questioning the narrative, questioning some of the science mentioned in the video. Because some of the videos that are out there, actually, I'm going to say this, I'm going (laughs) to, a little bit of a hot take, a lot of the videos out there aren't referenced, and therefore you cannot fact check what they've said. They just say stuff, and they expect you to believe it. And this, these are doctors, these are researchers, these are scientists, and when they're saying things, you, you... you want to try and believe them because of the accreditation they've got, the the qualification they've got. Yes, they're a medical student, or they are now a doctor, they're a qualified doctor, or they've, they've got a PhD in something. Just because they've got a piece of paper doesn't mean what they're saying is true. It means that they've done a lot of research, and they have a piece of paper to say they've done a lot of research in a certain area. But they could be talking about something that doesn't cross the area of research. So their relative education, or their relative learning, their relative understanding in that topic could be just the same as you. And they may not have read any academic articles they may not have read any papers you don't know they've just said something and they go along with it or which is really bad they say studies show research though science shows don't reference it and when you look at the science and you look at the research they've either misinterpreted they've misfacted like they've, they've just not looked at the facts right or they're manipulating the facts to give you a narrative that suits what they want to do and this is part of fact checking you look at the source you look at why they're why they're sharing that narrative why they're sharing that information and what they were talking um, what um Oh, wow, I'm so bad with names. And what Tom was talking about in the video was Veritasium has been sponsored by the people they were talking about. And a lot of the facts that were spoken about was supportive. And there were very few facts that were negative, that critiqued it, that made made anything worrying. There was there was no leveling out in the narrative. The all the facts that disagreed with this opinion of this company were coincidentally left out. And this is where the channel could have added some science in there some some i say science in there adding some added some critique in there to allow for different opinions to allow for that conversation to be had rather than just giving a narrative and saying this is good we need to be positive about this and when you you could be really cynical and say he was doing it just for the money maybe Maybe not. We don't know. Uh, and there were loads of other channels that are similar, doing you know, sponsored videos on companies that aren't being critical. They're not giving both sides. They're not being nuanced enough and giving both sides of a conversation. Now, as soon as you're nuanced and you, you give both sides of a conversation, you, it, it does start to elongate the video. It can get complex and complicated because you're debating things that people may be brand new to. Thinking about cognitive load theory and where the energy goes, if you bring up 
two completely new topics the individual watching the video is going to have to have learnt which you can't learn in two or three minutes they're going to have to learn to understand what the topics are for the argument the discussion to really make any sense because they have to imagine what is going on they have to in their head hold the fundamental knowledge of each point before they can compare each point because if you don't know two topics and then you try and compare those topics you don't know the topics so how can you remember what it's like uh, you can't <laughs> that's the answer uh, so in cognitive load theory you need to understand the two points to be able to compare them so the comparison can only happen with people that fully understand what is going on and the comparisons being made but the comparison that's being made obviously is is being done in a video so it's almost like you need a video series, one video to explain one thing, one video to explain another, one video to make the comparison. But if you do that, you're breaking up the audience, breaking up the energy, breaking up the narrative. And a lot of people could just watch the one video that's positive and then the comparison and then get confused. So it makes education very difficult. And education is not meant to be simple. <laughs> it's not meant to be easy. And I don't think it is easy. But we have. But I think we have a responsibility in education when we're sharing content, to put references in, put things in so people can go fact-check for those individuals that do want to go and fact-check, myself being one of those, uh, and also giving the opportunity for people to have a look at, and, and see where the sources have come from. Even if you don't want to go and fact-check something, going into the description or just finding where the video has come from is useful. But I think the difference between just dumping a reference in there or dumping a book in there or saying, my source for this video is this book. Uh, I think we need to educate the, the population in general and say one source isn't good enough. This, this is one of my biases, but one source is not good enough. Just because a book says something doesn't mean it's true. It, it, it just doesn't. Uh, and research and understanding is something that Kan Jung Hui... Uh, I, I hope I pronounced that name right. Research as Understanding was a blog post that she wrote about. And she wrote about blog and trying to, bear with me, understand what understanding is and understand what research is. Because for her, she thought they were different. And she said something that, well, she said a lot of things that were very, very true. And I related to a lot. I resonated with a lot. And she said, when you try to understand something and hit the bounds of what humanity currently knows that is research so when you're trying to understand something and you hit the boundaries of what science has said or what research has said or what science has said that is research that is you doing research into something you have asked so many questions and gone so nuanced that human knowledge hasn't quite got some answers there whereas understanding is using what human knowledge does have prior knowledge it does have to support future research, to support future beliefs and, and future understanding. So understanding is looking backwards in time, looking at prior beliefs, prior understanding, using the newer beliefs, the newer experiences, the new information to then educate our actions in the now and educate our questions moving forwards. Whereas research is using our understanding, using the past knowledge to then ask those questions moving forwards and trying to find answers. In, in future. And this is where I think a lot of people that are consuming content don't do the research bit. They don't want to look at questions going beyond the answers we've already got. And I think people are a little bit negligent with their understanding because they jump to conclusions, myself included. We jump to conclusions. We just assume, yes, this person must be right. 
and we we need to assume sometimes we, we can't always research or fact check everything because we wouldn't do anything with our lives um so we need to make assumptions we need to have trustworthy sources where we believe that they are doing their due diligence in what they're talking about but the understanding that we have understanding is looking at prior knowledge and if our understanding is based off of individuals that aren't looking at multiple sources in the in the background then we're going to have a biased understanding which is where i, I don't want to talk about politics too much but that's where politics is politics is they they build a narrative off the the facts the figures the numbers that they want i say they because all sides do it uh, and and they may build an understanding for their their groups their followers and then they compare that with the other people but because the, their followers aren't politicians they're not looking at the facts and their numbers they're just believing that narrative unless they're going to have a look and this is where the difference between uh, politics in, in politics in coaching in science and research this is the, the difference which which causes the arguments you've got one one group of people that are believing a certain a certain narrative because they don't don't have the time to, or don't want to have a, a real look at the research and understanding. And then you've got the other side of that, which are exactly the same, don't have the time or resources or just don't want to look at the research and, and understand what's going on. And then you have the people in the middle that are doing a bit of research, a bit of understanding and are, are on both sides of the fence. And those people sit on the fence because they understand the research or they understand the research better. They understand, therefore, better than uh, the the two sides because they they've got a, a broader understanding i say better because they have a broader understanding they have synthesis and critique from various perspectives and opinions rather than a, an opinionated and biased narrative so they sit on the fence <laughs> they end up sitting on the fence because there are points from both sides that they agree with and disagree with a lot of the time which makes politics very, very difficult, which makes education very, very difficult, because in the end of the day, education is a political topic, is a political topic, is a political subject, because you have different ways of educating, and everyone learns slightly differently, and education, supposedly, is meant to be <laughs> filling the factories, filling the jobs, but I can't think of many jobs that are actually in the world that you actually need school for. I mean, apart from reading and writing, what else do you need school for? Um, but yeah, so mo moving mo moving forward with that, we've got spot the guru syndrome, and this is related to research. This is related to almost everything I've spoken about, especially the Veritasium video, um, and and what uh, Tom was talking about. Uh, strong opinions, too many things. Strong opinions on too many things, uh, and makes an us v them a tribalism, a, a fight. And this was a, a conversation Brad and Steve had on the growth equation on the Growth Equation podcast, and they were talking about what is uh, a guru, what is a guru, uh, guru syndrome, and the individuals that talk about things but don't really know what they're talking about, and you can talk about something and not fully understand something, it doesn't, it doesn't make you a guru, but if you talk about lots of things and take a, a, con a controversial view on lots of things that you haven't done the research in, you don't do the understanding in, then you're moving into that, that, that realm of guru syndrome. So if you've picked, say for example, I'm going to use strength and conditioning as an example, uh, if you pick strength and conditioning as a field you're going to talk about, and then you talk about upper body strength, lower body strength, different training modalities, different fundamental movements, hypertrophy, and you, you talk about all of those different topics, and the, the science that you're talking about isn't necessarily correct. The research that you reference isn't necessarily correct, and you, you've got poor sample sizes, poor research, and you're manipulating the data, but you're doing it repeatedly, 
then that's guru syndrome. That's what they were talking about. They were saying that if you repeatedly make assumptions, you repeatedly take a controversial uh, view, or you take a view that is drastically different from what science has said, and you repeatedly do it in a certain area or certain field of research, and it's creating a narrative that goes against literally everything that science is saying, then you're pretending to be an expert, you're pretending to know something that you don't, which is the the guru syndrome they were talking about, guru syndrome they were talking about, which, yes, can have arguments backwards and forwards. So how do we then avoid that? I think we avoid that by not talking about too many things that we don't understand. Because as soon as you start talking about one or two things that you don't really understand, you then start linking that with new things. And as soon as you link things together that you don't understand, you can then create dangerous sometimes, but you can then create narratives that aren't useful, aren't helpful, which is where uh, all the conspiracy theories typically come from. They come from guru syndrome, (laughs) the individuals that have gone, gone to research, maybe, or not gone to research, and have just listened to what someone has said. They've assumed that it's true, then they've said something. But that one thing is fine. And then they've said something else, and then something else, and something else. And now they've said multiple things, and other people are saying this sort of similar thing, creating this this group, this narrative around something that is based off of an opinion, or based off of a false interpretation of information. Now, this can happen unintentionally in science. People can find a, a, a conclusion, a significant difference in science because of p-values, potentially p-hacking as well, and loads of people write articles and papers about this thing, but they don't actually fact-check the original source. So it happens in science, it happens in research, it happens in politics, and it's not going to go away. So how do we do anything about it? What I think we do is we try and fact check, we try and research as much as possible. And when we are sharing things, I think this is a something that the world needs to try to understand, is when we are sharing things, share things that we understand. Don't share things that we don't understand. Or at least we have a good understanding of where the answers could be. So we can give people the choice to go and have a look. Again, going back to my rant of references, please please, just put references in your videos or in your descriptions or in your blog posts, just somewhere so I can look at it. Um, Anyway, (laughs) moving back towards energy and effort, bringing that back to the conversation, Seth was talking, Seth Godin was talking about effort in one of his blogs and said, perfectionism is a false hope and a place to hide. So I'll say that again. Perfectionism is a false hope and a place to hide. Now, when we're looking at effort, direction of effort, perfectionism, when you're trying to be perfect at something, you're you're fact-checking everything, you're making sure your understanding is perfect, it's false hope because it's never going to happen. And I I think he's he said it very nicely in, in adding the a place to hide because some people in research, some people in content creation want it to be perfect. They don't want to say something that's wrong. And that in itself is limiting because if you, if you can't say anything that's wrong, you're never going to say anything because everything you say is going to be wrong depending on a nuance, a subjective opinion, a narrative. It's going to be wrong to someone out there. You can never be right everywhere unless you say something that doesn't have any substantial action, actionable data for it, but if there's no action for it, then it's pointless, <laughs> because then you're just saying something for the fact of saying something. My room is orange. I'm right, and no one can say I'm wrong, but it doesn't impact or do anything to anyone. It's a pointless statement. So, functional, uh, functional capacity, that's the next point. So, perfectionism is a false hope and a place to hide. 
And finding places to hide is very easy. I used to do it a lot. I don't want to say this, uh, or I'm going to answer all my emails, or I'm going to make sure I've got all of the facts right of this, or I'm going to make sure I'm never wrong here. It's a place to hide. We need to be wrong so people could critique us and say, actually, no, no, that's not right. This is why. And then start a conversation and keep the conversation moving so that we can get some valuable additions to it. And this is where group education, group learning, humanity in reasoning needs to come to the forefront because one person is not going to have all the answers. We need group answers, group conversations around something. So what a what a piece of content is in my mind is it's a start of a conversation. It's someone's understanding, someone's level of understanding being expressed so other people can either get to that level of understanding or if they're beyond it, challenge that level of understanding or if at the same level, just try and grasp where the reference is, where the sources are, where the critique is. But if you don't start that conversation, it can't happen. And what 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 I wish happened more in these group conversations when I see them on Discord or I see them on Twitter and in Reddit is the person with the most understanding is going to be the one leading most of those conversations because people are going to be asking questions and it's the people that answer those questions that are given the um, the, the social status because they, they know the answers or they know an answer to that question. So the person with the most understanding is therefore being given the highest status and the highest impact about the narrative. Now, if that person with understanding has got their understanding from somewhere that is false, it therefore means everyone that is subject to that person's conversation is therefore being influenced, which is why I think we need experts, quote-quote experts, um, and individuals that are heavy in the research to talk about their research and not necessarily create content, but just be contributing to those conversations somewhere that can be seen. Even just having conversations with a couple of people that have influence. And this is where I think we need more researchers in special fields, in specialist fields, in nuanced fields, to talk to people that have influence in areas of communication. So YouTube is obviously a massive platform. Loads of people use it, especially for learning. Loads of people use YouTube for learning. And there are loads of other platforms for learning. But when you look at individuals that have influence, people in the productivity space in specific, they have loads of influence, but they don't use researchers from the fields. They use their own research, which is inherently biased, <laughs> which is kind of like the point of this uh, point of this episode. And when when I look at relative age effect, so this is moving away from effort a little bit and looking into sports coaching. Relative age effect is something that I have been researching re- recently. I know what it is. I know the effect. I know the effects that are in the effect. Bear with me for a second. Um, and I know a lot of the psychological and sociological biases that goes towards making the relative age effect a thing. But there are elements of relative age effect that I just don't understand. I didn't understand. So I did a bit of research. And this is where my notes are starting to flesh out. And I will probably do a video on it at some point. But the relative age effect is affected by the Matthew effect, the Galatea effect, the Pygmalion effect, the self-fulfilling prophecy, and is also impacted by maturation levels, perceived maturation levels of youth and individuals. And also, <laughs> the popularity of the sport. And for, for those that aren't familiar with it, essentially the relative age effect suggests uh, that if you were born at the beginning of the academic or the sporting year, you are more likely to do well in sporting performance and be a professional sport athlete. So for the UK, if you're born in September, you're more likely to play professional sport because you have an advantage. And the advantage is given by the Matthew effect, Galatea effect, Pygmalion effect, self-fulfilling prophecy, maturation, and impacted 
by the popularity of the sport because what they've found is the relative age effect is true in popular sports. In less popular sports, the relative age effect is actually not true and it's actually almost the opposite. So late developers, late maturers that are smaller at school, smaller in their age groups, uh, actually have a benefit in some of the less popular sports because all the pop, all, all the popular sports have been taken up by the, the bigger kids, the older kids. So there's actually a, a reversal effect almost uh, in other sports. So the relative age effect, I didn't realize there was a, re I didn't realize it was like an opposite. There could have been an opposite, but reading some of the articles and someone else's further understanding, people that are heavy in this research, I was like, ah, that's a good point. So if I was to speak about that, I would want a, a quote unquote expert to talk about it or for me to at least acknowledge, okay, these are some papers that I don't know about yet. I haven't read through. I don't understand this. So my narrative isn't, I know the answer. My narrative is, this is where I'm at at this point in time. And that is the difference, I think, between what I want to do moving forwards and the content that I'm currently seeing. What I'm currently seeing is an answer being given, a conclusion being made, which in science is is it's just not right. The, most of the time, the conclusions in academic papers is future research needs to look at this. There are very rarely actual conclusions to something because science is a circle, not a line. Uh, <laughs> so the videos, albeit, yeah, videos have an end to, but the end of a video needs to be the start of another that that's that's the way I look at it. Uh, so functional capacity increases helps functionals. Uh, yeah, my my note was pretty poor there, but basically functional fitness. What is functional fitness? Functional capacity increasing your functional ability to move. Now this is again strength and conditioning, but this is another example of where someone has put a piece of content out, or lots of people have put a piece of content out. They haven't fully understood what it means, what the words mean. They either haven't looked at the research. They or they, they have misinterpreted what's been said, potentially due to whoever has expressed the information about functional fitness and functional movement, or they just, their, their level of understanding is different, which means they are expressing what functional fitness means to them. And what it means to them is not what it means to experts and people with further understanding. So what could they do? I think they could listen to some of the experts do some more research rather than carry on a narrative. And this is something that I know I would want to, um, myself anyway, challenge, is every time I create a narrative with a piece of content, because a piece of content is it has an end point, it's been published, it's finished, um, I wouldn't want to repeat information from a piece of content, right or wrong, I wouldn't want to repeat it until I've done more research into trying to understand it. So functional movement, functional fitness isn't going on BOSU balls and trying to balance on silly sticks. Uh, and it is compound movements. It is a squat. A squat is a functional movement. You don't have to be crawling around on the floor to be doing a functional movement. It's a functional movement. And the, the, this false narrative that's been created because of a lack of understanding is dangerous. I mean, some some people on Instagram are so funny, and this this conversation conversation comes from shredded sport science. That's why I keep messing up my messing up my s's. Shredded sport science uh, is a YouTube channel, and he's a sports scientist. He knows a lot about strength training and the way sports science works, and he calls out a lot of people on Instagram for poor understanding and sharing some really dangerous activities. And that's where understanding content creation has created a narrative around something that is dangerous for health. But 
it's it's understanding needed and people that are consuming that information need a critical eye but how do you develop that critical eye going all the way back to school and youth development youth development i'm going to link this to long-term athlete development and youth strength and conditioning because we're talking about strength and conditioning at the moment long-term athlete development ltad there are loads of models that can be applied to youth development most of them relate around maturation levels of maturation but there is also psychology in there, thinking back to psychology and sports coaching. There is also psychology in LTAD, in long-term athlete development. And those psychological aspects, like how, how do you grow up? Like if you're the younger person in a, a year group or a group or, or a team, how does that, that age gap uh, change the social narrative? Are you friends with everyone? Are you scared of everyone? Um, or are you older and you've got more confidence earlier on? Or th th There's loads of different sociological aspects and psychological aspects to development when you are younger. And when you do develop those skills, these skills to be critical, if parents, teachers, other peers are, are bashing you down for asking questions, that's a silly question. No. I was being critical in strength and conditioning. You can't do that. That's dangerous. Actually, it's perfectly fine as long as they do A, B, and C, or they consider D, E, and F. So there's, there needs to be constraints put on environments, I think, when we're learning, rather than people saying, no, don't do that, or ridiculing people for asking questions and being critical, because then when we move forwards and we get into this world of functional fitness, being crawling around on the floor on all fours, when we move into that world... Because our youth development, our learning when we were younger has been critiqued so much, we don't ask as many questions as we could. And we, we restrict ourselves to doing things that could look silly, which I think is poor education from our standpoint. And moving into adult education, we then need to relearn how to learn, which is a it takes a lot of effort. And this is a, a, a comment from Adam Grant or a word from Adam Grant. I haven't got a quote for that because he just talks about it all the time. But relearning as an adult, we have to relearn. Why should we be relearning? Why can't we re re redo the, the the youth education system so that we don't have to relearn as an adult? And long-term athlete development model, the youth strength and conditioning research is all suggesting that. Because LTAD suggests that we need to be critical. We need to have a look at what's going on in those social environments so that it's more... Uh, more beneficial, more facilitative of education, of learning, of understanding, rather than fearful of being wrong, fearful of failure. Uh, and youth S&C, so many people in the past have said, strength and conditioning for young individuals is dangerous. It Trampolining and gymnastics stunts growth. No, it doesn't. <laughs> no, it doesn't. Um, if, if you do too much of it, it can do. But that's the same with anything. It's the same with any sport. Same with any forces that go on your body. Uh, it's beneficial within reason. There is nuance to it. So making generalized statements is dangerous, especially for youth development, because then they hold those beliefs. Those prior beliefs are held moving into the future, which makes relearning even even harder, even harder. Um, and <laughs> and I was I was looking to listening to a conversation between Anna Lorena Fabriga, I think is how you say that, and Polina Pompolino. I'm going to go with that. Uh, references again in the description. I was listening to a conversation and they were talking about school and education. And Anna is, uh, 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 I, I guess, a supporter of newer 
more front thinking forward thinking types of education using she's using online education doesn't have to be online but using environments using environmental constraints using tasks games goals free learning multi uh, multi intelligences multiple intelligences to help individuals find environments that help learning for them and what she said she said something that i was like yes that is so true play the game of school and when we're in school, when we're in school, that could be education, that could be youth sport, that could be youth groups. You you play the game. You you listen to the teacher, to the person in charge, so you don't get in trouble. Or some people do, some people don't. You play the game. You know what the teachers expect. You know what the adults expect. You know what the curriculum expects. You know, oh, I'm going to have to do well on this essay to, to do the next thing. And what this does is it... it, it gets it gets rid of the why am i learning <laughs> and, and again coming back to this relearning what relearning is young young education youth education when when going through it you sort you sort of think well this is what i was thinking to myself okay i've got an essay i've got an exam to get to the next year i need to pass like in higher education i need to pass my essays to get to the next year i need to pass my essays to get to the next year i need to pass my essays to get my degree which means i can do my next degree which means i can do my next essays <laughs> and it's just a continuous cycle up the educational ladder which is what it was built for it's what the edu- educational ladder was built for built for moving up the hierarchy it's not built for creative thinking and moving outside the box and something that i think would be a scary study is if you ask children at school i say children that could be probably like 6 to 15 or 6 to even 18 and you ask them why are you in education most of them, I would imagine, would say, because I need to be. Not because they want to be, because they need to be. Why are you taking the essay? Because I need to do it for next year. Not because they want to do it, because they need to do it. Why are you learning about math? Because that's my subject today. Why are you learning about English? Because that's my subject today. <laughs> There's very little choice about what they want to learn about. Which, how is that helpful for motivation? Um, and I'm, I'm going to finish on this very last this very last point. So, education or learning. This was a tweet from Shackleton Jones. Uh, and I'm actually going to bring it up on my screen because it was, it was a really nice... Um, a uh, really nice tweet, and what they did is there was an education, or he did, there, there was education versus learning, and I'm going to read out some of the points. So education is ritual, fact-based, topic-led, lectures, in- instructor-centric, explicit, concentric-centric, and anxious. They are the words that have been put up against education, and then learning has been natural, reaction-based, task-led, conversation, user-centric, implicit, context-centric, and playful. So both of them have context-centric because both of them are individualized to context, but everything else about them are completely different. Task-led for learning, natural for learning. What about formal education is natural, is task-led, is reaction-based? It's it's all focused around the lecture, the topic, the facts at the time. Yeah, not not something I, I would personally enjoy. I wouldn't want to go back into formal education because it's too restrictive. And I'm so glad I'm out of that. But why can't we then change it for the youth? That would be my question for you. What can we do and how can we change youth education so that instead of having to relearn as an adult, we can further understand? <laughs>